We do indeed praise you, Jesus. We praise you that you are risen, and we worship you with, with our bodies and our voices, and now we want to worship you with our hearts and our minds. Holy Spirit, would you speak through me? Take your words and apply them to our hearts. Deepen our knowledge of you that we may learn to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In your name we pray. Amen. Get your Bibles out and turn. Well, I'll get you there in a little bit. We've been looking at a sermon series called What the Bible Says About. And we talked about, uh, for example, uh, the family and marriage and even false religions. And last week we talked about masculinity. And we're going to follow that up by talking about femininity. What the Bible says about being a woman. On March 22nd, 2022, you guys remember this? Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican of Tennessee, asked President Joe Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Ketanji Brown Jackson, the simple question Can you provide a definition of the word woman? Remember this? Jackson replied, No, I can't. Blackburn said, You can't. Jackson said, I'm not a biologist. Okay. Later that day, Blackburn said this, and kind of summing up the, the day's events, it's a simple question. What is a woman? It is telling when a nominee supported by far-left advocacy groups will not even answer the question. Uh, Amy Frey tweeted publicly what most of us were thinking privately, a woman who will be one of nine persons to deliberate and decide the most important disagreements in all the land can't decide what a woman is. Okay? Either Katanji Brown-Jackson can't or won't. I think she can. She's an educated woman. She simply won't. But there are some who simply cannot just like I showed some videos last week, we're going to start with a video this week as I queue up my son David to put behind me the first video. This is from Prager University. Or, uh, it's Will Witt of Prager U. He visited Florida Gulf Coast University asking students to define what a woman is. Their responses were revealing. But if Here, but it's funny looking at your reactions. Laughing, shock, amazement, disbelief. There's a simple question, right? Right? Simple question, what is a woman? Right? Now, I, now let's, let's be honest here. I would kind of expect, as you would, to get these confusing answers because where are we talking about? Where's this question being asked? It's a university setting, and we know that the radical left owns the colleges and universities. So, how about another part of the world? Not the United States, just the world. How about the United Kingdom? (laughs) 
This is funny, um, but it's also disturbing. Annalise Dodds is a British labor and cooperative politician. Catch this. She is serving as shadow secretary of state for women and equalities since 2021. And she was asked to define a woman. Again, what's her, her job? She's a shadow secretary of state for women and equalities. David, you can put this next video up. This is from the Great Britain News, and they asked a simple question, what is a woman? This came after Annalise Dodds, the Shadow Minister for Women and Equalities, said that myself, GB News reporters Lily Hewitson and Anna Riley, thank you for carrying out the Real Britain investigation of defining what a woman is. What is a woman? Whoever would have thought that such a simple question could get such diverse answers, right? What took you back? You started here, just shouted out. What took you back watching these two videos? <laughs> a woman could get <laughs> testicular cancer. Yes. Anybody else? It's just funny. It's funny. Right? It's, it's, it's sad, and it, it, it's so sad. It's funny. It is. What, what took me back was, okay, I, I give you something in America, and, I, and, and it's on a college campus, and I get that. Um, but then I went to, quite frankly, older people in another country. You notice that the number of old people in Great Britain that they were talking about? And they were confused. Yeah, they live longer. That's about it. They live longer. So why those videos? Well, I I wrote down here, it really is mind-boggling that there's so much confusion about what is a woman. I mean, again, it is funny and downright tragic at the same time. I think that's what you're saying. But, folks, it is also a matter of great importance to God. In Titus chapter 2, just listen to this, the Apostle Paul gives instruction to the church as to how it is to conduct itself. And you can turn there if you want, but I'm going to put the verse up here so you don't necessarily have to do that. But specifically, uh, he directs his instruction to older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. So he's telling you this is how the church is to function within you know, sex roles. And it's very crucial to the life of the church. Let me show you why it's crucial to the life of the church. Not only for the church's well-being, but for the sake of the witness of the church. This is what he puts up here. And answering your question, what is a woman? This is what he puts up here. Look at two, Titus 2, 5, 8, and 10. At the very end of verse 5, he says, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. See that? Verse 8, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. In verse 10, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. We want the word of God honored, right? We want the opponents of Christianity silenced, and we want God our Savior adorned. This is an evangelistic matter. This is about the witness of the church. So knowing the, what a man or woman is and the role of a man or woman in the church is obviously very, very important to God. 
And right now in our culture, I have a question for you. Is there any group, older men, older women, younger women and younger men, that is being attacked more viciously than the matter of the role of women? If I just read Titus 2, 4, and 5, it's not up here. I'm going to read it to you. There is immediate controversy. This is what Titus 2, 4, and 5 says. Paul says, older women are instruct young women to do this. Listen to this. So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Love your husband and children. Work at home, i.e. be a homemaker. Submit to your husband. Those are all hot-button topics among the women of today. Would you agree with me? Absolutely. So it is a matter of extreme importance to God that we know what is a woman. And the reality is, the two videos are really typical and a great picture and symbolic of the world we live in. There is massive gender confusion. And I saw, I shared this video with my sons via Twitter, of uh, an African-American or black pastor. He said, I'm going to get in trouble for this. But he went off. There are just two genders. <laughs> and he went off. So let's talk about biblical femininity. Now last week I brought a definition of John Piper for what is biblical masculinity. And this is what he wrote. And I share with you, at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, protect women and what is appropriate to a man's differing relationships. In other words, the man's role is to, with a, a good heart towards women, to lead, provide for, and to protect women. Okay? You can't define femininity unless you f- define masculinity. They're both complementary. So you need to understand masculinity before you get to this definition of what is his words, biblical femininity. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's different relationships. So the man is what? Here. What's he doing? Leading, providing, and protecting, right? The woman is doing what? She's not leading. She's not providing. She's not protecting. What she's doing? She's, uh, she's free to receive, to affirm, receive, and nurture the strength of the men in her life. You see that? Because by definition, she is the helper of the men. This is anti-competition. You don't compete with your head. Wives don't compete with your husbands. That's really kind of what he's saying here. But this is what the Bible teaches, okay? And even that, obviously, is controversial. Now, he defines mature femininity this way in greater detail when Piper states this. It refers not to what sin has made of womanhood or what popular opinion makes of it but what God has willed for it to be at its best. It is an attitude or a mindset, women, 
to yield to, your, to her male authority and primarily the husband's authority and a desire to follow his leadership. And that puts a burden on men. And I talked about that last week, how that burden is it's, it, to always have to lead is tiresome. But that's what God's called men to do. It is freeing in the sense that no submission to another human being is absolute. And therefore, the female, she will not follow his leadership into sin. Because ultimately, she submits to Christ first and foremost. But as a helper, mature femininity gladly affirms or advocates for mature masculinity and femininity in complementarity. They complement each other by God's design. And when one isn't working, that's a problem. As a helper, mature femininity welcomes strength and leadership from worthy men. As a helper, mature femininity also senses a responsibility to nurture and strengthen masculine leadership. In other words, men are in process and we need help. God said that we were incomplete. You need help. She joins in the act of strength and shares in the process of leadership. The phrase worthy men implies that mature femininity has a clear vision of biblical masculinity. In other words, women, you need to know what to look for in a man. When a man is not worthy or does not possess mature masculinity, and let's face it, that's most men, The response of the mature woman, the the, the biblical femininity, is you don't abandon your femininity, but you retain the desire for things to be as God intended. Okay? To help us understand both mature masculinity and femininity, um, turn to 1 Corinthians 11.7. You know, I put this up there. You can just look at this. It's right up here. It says, For a man... ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. What Paul's saying here is that in 1 Corinthians eleven seven, that men in relationship to women have a particular role of representing God or showing what he is like. He is the image and glory of God. And women in relationship to men, in particular the wife to the husband, show the excellence of the men from which she was created. Your job is to make us look good in one sense. And Lord, have mercy, we need a lot of help. A wife's willing submission to her husband reveals a sense of ownership and respect she has for her husband. This is why Elizabeth Elliot writes on the essence of femininity, a fitting summary of God's ideal for wives, and I shared this a few weeks ago, Unlike Eve, whose response to God was calculating and self-serving, the Virgin Mary answers, answer holds no hesitation about risks or losses or the interruption of her own plans. It is an utter and unconditional self-giving. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said, Luke one thirty-eight. This is what I understand, as Elliot goes on to say, to be the essence of femininity. It means surrender. Think of a bride. What does, she do? what does she surrender? Her independence, her name, her destiny, her will, herself to the bridegroom in marriage. The gentle and quiet spirit 
of which Peter speaks, calling it of great worth in God's sight, is the true femininity, which found its epitome in Mary. But like masculinity, femininity is under attack. Now, this is where we'll get into the the bulk of our time here and why I did the whole sermon section on false religion. Perhaps truer words were never written than what Solomon penned in Ecclesiastes when he wrote this. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is what? Nothing new under the sun. Remember that. There is nothing new under the sun. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. Okay? I don't think I put this verse up here. No. There were feminists in the New Testament time, if you didn't know that. In fact, the feminists of the New Testament had started a liberation movement and it extended even into the church. And guess what it it, it looked like? Head coverings. Starting in verse 3, chapter 11. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off of her head shaved, let her cover her head. Let me explain this to you real quickly. I'm going to just have read you a quote from John MacArthur here. It says, We know from secular history that various movements of women's liberation and feminism appeared in the Roman Empire during the New Testament times. Did anyone know that? Did anyone know that? There's been feminist movements throughout history. Okay? Women would often take off their veils or other head coverings and cut their hair off in order to look like men. Much as in our day, some women were demanding to be treated exactly like men, and they attacked marriage and the raising of children as unjust restrictions of their rights. Remember the feminist movement in the 70s? They asserted their independence by leaving their husbands in homes, refusing to care for their children, living with other men, demanding jobs traditionally held by men, wearing men's clothing and hairdos, and by discarding all signs of femininity. It is likely that some of the believers at Corinth were influenced by those movements. And as a sign of protest and independence, what did they do? They refused to cover their heads at appropriate times. As in the time of Rome, biblical femininity is under attack from the ranks of women from the feminist movement of today. Now most of us think that the feminist agenda is about women who want to be liberated from working at home, you know, from cleaning floors and washing dishes and raising children, supporting their husbands. Women want equal jobs and equal pay and to express themselves in more grandiose ways than they think they can in the home. But the real feminist agenda is frightening. Has anybody studied the feminist movement, by the way? 
It is disturbing, to say the least. The Declaration of Feminism, you can look at this online if you want to, of November 1971, here's a direct quote, look at this. It plainly states this. The end of the institution of marriage is necessary for the liberation of women. And that kind of doesn't make sense, because if you're going to end marriage, then how are you going to have children, right? <laughs> Anyways, therefore, it is important for us to encourage women to leave their husbands and not to live individually with men. All of history must be rewritten in terms of oppression of women. Does that sound familiar, folks, oppression? We must go back to ancient female religions like witchcraft. Did you know that was part of the feminist movement? Annie Laurie Gaylor, she, writing in an article called Feminist Salvation in The Humanist in 1988, wrote this. Let's forget about the mythical Jesus and look for encouragement, solace, and inspiration from real women. 2,000 years of patriarchal rule. What's patriarchal rule? Male leadership. God's design for a society. Under the shadow of the cross ought to be enough to turn women toward the feminist salvation of the world. In other words, how is the world going to be saved? Through women. Sheila Cronin, writing in the National Organization for Women's Times in January of 1988, so we're talking about 17 years after this declaration in November 1971, she wrote this, the simple fact is every woman must be willing to be recognized as a lesbian to be fully feminine. You can look all this stuff up if you want to. Okay, I'm not making this up. So the ending of the institution of marriage and patriarchy and the embracing of witchcraft, feminist salvation, and lesbianism is the feminist agenda. See that? It is no wonder why the Black Lives Matter movement states they want to end patriarchy or leadership of men. Remember this? We build a space that affirms black women and is free from sexism, misogyny, and environments in which men are centered. And by the way, this makes perfect sense now, having grown up in the shadow of the feminist movement, Black Lives Co-Matter Patrice Cullors is a lesbian married to Jenea Khan, who identifies herself as black, queer, and gender non-confirming. That is simply playing itself out. This is the result of the feminist agenda. When you start talking about destroying marriage and patriarchy and affirming false religions and gross sexual immorality, you're talking about obliterating a culture, folks. And you now go beyond the physical realm of world movements and you enter the spiritual realm in satanic movements. The real feminist agenda, as you're seeing, is satanic. Let me show you what it really is behind this agenda. And it's nothing new. It's very old. And in our time, we see it simply as an expression of anti-male, homosexual women who created it years ago, but the truth is, it's not a human creation. It's a satanic strategy. 
feminism with all its unique features in companionship with homosexuality, it's an old heresy that is meant to destroy God's design. It started in the garden when Eve, the original feminist, stepped out from under Adam's authority. She acted independently and led humanity into sin. And so the first act in Satan's feminist agenda was successful. And from there you go to what? Of course, the Tower of Babel. Remember the sermon on false religions? And you had the worship of the first female false god, Semiramis. Remember that? But instead of going through ancient history, I'm going to move forward in time to the New Testament. Because before the New Testament, through the New Testament, even after the New Testament, we have a religion that is known as Gnosticism. You guys familiar with this word? Gnosticism? It comes from the Greek word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, which simply means to know. Gnosticism was the mystical religion of superior knowledge. You could experience mystical, spiritual knowledge which was higher than the Bible. But at its core, Gnosticism was an anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-biblical religion designed by Satan to lure people away from Scripture. What you see today in the feminist agenda is really nothing more than a repackaging of ancient Gnosticism. And now, because it's, it's in a sense, relative in, in how it handles truth, it's hard to identify the details of the Gnostic religion because it's a mixture of all these different mystical beliefs. Today, we would call Gnosticism New Age philosophy. Does that help? The New Age movement? The best way to define it is not by what it is, but by what it, it attacks. Because it's so subject to imagination and intuition. But basically, it's easily identifiable because it contradicts everything in Scripture. At the heart of ancient Gnosticism was a central myth. And this is what you've got to understand. There's a physical universe made of matter. And this physical universe was never intended to exist. And Gnostics believe that matter is evil and the spirit is what? Good. We're all supposed to be free spirits with full self-knowledge that make us divine. Remember the lie in the garden? Eat this, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will be like God. Exactly. The physical universe came into being because a foolish sub-God that they call a demi-urge, the foolish sub-God of the Bible, our God, did a stupid thing and he created the universe. Gnostics hate the creator God who made matter because to them matter was evil and it became the prison of the spirit. And according to one recently discovered Gnostic text, the God of the Bible, God the creator, the God who we worship, is presented as blind, ignorant, arrogant, and a source of envy. They call him the father of death. He created the world as an act of pride because he wanted it for what? His own glory. Gnostics believe that the fake God of the Bible somehow created the universe and accidentally infused into humanity some spark of divine life, making man divine. 
And all man must do is fan the divine life in him or her until he realizes his divinity. So we have man and woman with a divine spark imprisoned in evil matter, and he must find a way of escape. The Gnostics taught there's no such thing as sin because there's no such thing as a right or wrong in the human realm. Therefore, there's no need for a savior, no need for death on the cross, and no need for atonement for your sins. What they needed to do to be saved was to throw off the God of the Old and New Testament with all of his laws and consequences. So we can see that the first tenet or belief of the religious system of Gnosticism was a blasphemy against God. And ancient Gnosticism focused on women. It taught lies, the elevated women. For example, look at this. This is what it says. Eve was a spirit-endowed woman who saved Adam. They also said that final salvation for the whole world from the imprisonment of a matter will come through what? Female power. Female self-knowledge or self-actualization or self-realization in which a woman becomes so fully in tune with herself that she becomes fully divine will rescue lame men just like Eve, fully divine, rescued poor Adam. In fact, distorting the creation account, Gnostic texts tell us that Dame Wisdom, D-A-M-E, was the heavenly Eve. Now the question for us is, who was Dame Wisdom? I never heard that before, so I had to research that. Well, Pastor Bob Deffenbaugh shares this story. He says, while I was a student in seminary, I took advantage of an opportunity to accompany two police officers as an observer. They were patrolling one of the higher crime areas where there were many bars and other business establishments caring to a man's sinful nature. What puzzled me the most was they, the way they seemed to know who everybody was. These police officers would point out a young woman was a prostitute, and then they would identify the agent. I could not understand how they did it. I wondered if they were wearing name tags. How could they so easily distinguish the prostitutes from the other women around them? The fact was they knew a lot more about certain kinds of women than I did. Now in Proverbs, chapters 1 through 9, Anyone read Proverbs recently or, or, or whatever? It's a book of wisdom written by mainly Solomon. And he spends a great deal of time telling us about two different kinds of women. Now, James Crenshaw wrote the premier introduction to the wisdom books of the Old Testament, including Proverbs. It's entitled Old Testament Wisdom. He calls these two women Madam Folly and Dame Wisdom. So you have in the scriptures, folly and wisdom. In Proverbs chapters 1 through 9, Solomon is teaching his sons or sons that these two women personify two ways, the way of wisdom and the way of folly. Madam Folly is an adulteress, Proverbs 2.16, who leaves the companion of her youth, 2.17, and the one who is foolish enough to become involved with her, an adulteress, must deal with an angry husband, Proverbs chapter 6. It's foolish to get involved with a married woman, right? It's the way of folly. Wisdom, on the other hand, or dame wisdom, is personified as a virgin whom the wise son should pursue. 
She's more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. That's why he says, seek wisdom. She is like, or she is this. So wisdom is personified as a female. That is dame wisdom. So both wisdom and folly are portrayed as pursuing men and urging them to follow in their paths. Now, we know that the source of wisdom is none other than Jesus Christ, right? In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.23. But the Gnostics say that Dame Wisdom is the source of knowledge. It's not a man, Jesus. It is female, Dame Wisdom. And according to Gnostic beliefs, there was a mystical heavenly woman named the Heavenly Eve, who is also in the same name as Dame Wisdom, the source of all wisdom, she entered the snake in the Garden of Eden and taught both Adam and Eve the true way of salvation. The snake then is not called the tempter. The snake in Gnostic literature is the instructor in ultimate wisdom. The snake is also the redeemer because the snake is the incarnated woman who comes with the heavenly Eve and teaches the truth about self-realization, making yourself divine and delivering you from being encumbered by matter. They also say this, that the serpent in the garden is a true Christ, the true reflection of God. And what Satan obviously is, is doing through Gnosticism is taking redemptive history and doing what? He's twisting it, he's rewriting it, he's standing it on its head. God is evil, the serpent in the garden is a true Christ. Christ in the New Testament is evil. The true Christ is in the snake, who has deigned wisdom. So we can see that it is somewhat confusing, but it's clearly defined by what it attacks. God, Christ, the Bible, and creation. Gnosticism also says in the book of Genesis itself that the lack of self-realization is a problem of man. And that Bible says that man's problem is sin, and because of his sin, he needs a savior. That's what the Bible teaches. But Gnosticism flips that completely around. So the heart and care of Gnostic religion is to make yourself into a god through self-realization. By elevating yourself, you give complete sway to your own self-desire. The human struggle is not because you have a moral offenses against God, but you're ignorant of human potential. Therefore, they say that the obedience that led Jesus Christ to the cross has no significance. What they don't know according to Gnostic writing, is that the real Christ actually sat on the branch of a tree, watching the Christ on the cross and laughing at him. This is taken directly from the Apocalypse of Peter, Gnostic writing, one of their ancient documents. Just read that. He whom you saw on the tree, glad and laughing, this is the living Jesus. But the one in whose hands and feet they drive the nails is the fleshly part, which is a substitute being put to shame. For one who came into being is in his likeness. Be strong, for you are the one to whom these mysteries have been given, to know them through revelation that he whom they crucified is the firstborn in the home of what? Demons. And he who stands near him is the living Savior. So earth, the earthly Christ is a demon. The spiritual Christ in the tree laughing is a true Christ. 
Furthermore, the Gnostics go on to say that since the true Christ never died, there's no resurrection. Redemption, then, is not a gracious, miraculous transformation of a person through the sacrifice of Christ. Redemption is self-understanding, giving way or sway to anything yourself wants. In fact, they say that when a person comes to full self-knowledge, they become another living Christ. And since the serpent had that knowledge, the serpent who was a woman is also the true living Christ. Gnosticism is a blasphemy of satanic distortion of God's truth. The Bible says God is a good sovereign God. The Gnostics denied it and blasphemed the name. The Bible says Christ is a living God, incarnate in the flesh. The Gnostics denied it, blasphemed his name. The Bible says the snake was a tempter. They say the snake is wisdom personified and is the instructor. The Bible says Jesus died on the cross for your sins. The Gnostics say that Jesus had died on the cross was a joke. Obviously, this is Satan's lying heresy to confuse God's truth. The Apostle Paul wrote against these lies in his epistles in the New Testament, calling it the doctrine of demons and seducing spirits. And so, folks, I want you to see this morning that this wasn't invented by Gloria Steinem or Annie Laurie Gaylor or Sheila Cronin. The feminist movement of today was invented in the pits of hell millennia ago. Now, to the very central element in this, the issue of feminism. What role did feminism play in Gnosticism? Well, as I told you already, Eve was the savior of Adam. And furthermore, this, therefore, if she's the savior, salvation comes through feminine power, which is exactly what these ladies are quoting. Where did they get these ideas from? Ancient Gnosticism. repackaged and called in our time the New Age Movement. Furthermore, the spiritual or heavenly Eve was the personification of wisdom and the serpent who became the instructor. And, thus, and by thus, his instruction sets out to save men. But there is more. In the Gnostic system, Eve dominates Adam. And sexual roles are totally altered. That's why these roles are being attacked. They also wrote that the divine revealer was feminine. And here's one of her quotes. I am androgynous. I am both mother and father since I copulate with myself. I copulate with myself and with those who love me. And it's through me alone that the all stands firm. I am the womb that gives shape to the all by giving birth to the light that shines in splendor. I am the eon to come and the fulfillment of the all that is the glory of the, not the father, the mother. Obviously, you can see that Satan is attempting to tear down God's created order. And all the talk of androgyny, of Gnosticism, is nothing more than the wiping out of all sexual distinction. You saw two videos across our world <laughs> that are clear pictures of the blurring of the lines and the elimination of sexual distinction. To my knowledge, only two people from those, all those people they, they, in those videos got it right on a very simple question, what is a woman? 
The ideal for the Gnostic was to become sexless, a radical refusal of sexual differentiation and a complete confusion of sexual identity in God's intended role. That's the time we're living in. And what is the source of all of this? It's Satan. It is not the feminist movement. They are merely pawns. There are Gnostic texts where God, the creator, is castigated by a higher feminine power, the heavenly Eve called Sophia, Dame Wisdom, again. And God, the creator, finally learned the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, he learned to fear the feminine Sophia. So that the God of the Bible is now in fear of the feminine God, Sophia. The feminization then of this higher God, wisdom, led directly to the ordination of women. Okay? This is crucial for us for as a church. The ordination of women. What do I mean by the ordination of women? Women serving in the church as you know, leadership and pastors and so on and so forth. This ordination of women flows out of the feminization of deity. The early Gnostic, well-known to church history students, some of you may not recognize the name, Marcion, M-A-R-C-I-O-N. He was excommunicated from the church in A.D. 150. That is not too long from the, uh, I think it was A.D. 90, it was right around the time that the apostle John died. So we're at 60 years after John, very close to the time of Christ, you already have Gnosticism, and you have someone being excommunicated from the church. What did he do? Well, like every false prophet, he then established his own church. And what did he do? He appointed women as, as bishops and priests. A bishop is an elder. A role reserved for who? Men. There's an a, there's a, a offshoot of Gnosticism called Valentian Gnosticism, one of the major Gnostic Christian movements that was founded by Valentius in the second century A.D., Women function as teachers, evangelists, healers, priests, and perhaps as elders or bishops. So this movement in the church to put women into roles of spiritual leadership is simply reflective of this same kind of religious attitude. Now, this church believes in what is called complementarianism. But very clear in it when I was being interviewed, and that it's more the biblical or traditional view of men and women and their roles, particularly in the church. We complement each other. Men are to be the pastors and the elders, and the women can serve as deacons and other things throughout the church. The other movement within evangelical feminism, or within evangelical body of Christ, is what is called egalitarianism, that women can serve in these roles. Okay, This is not what this church believes. But there are, are churches and good churches that believe that. Probably the, the best-known church would be Willow Creek Community Church teaches that. Okay? But throughout history, within the church, that has never been an issue until the last 50 or 60 years. Now, in closing, this is how Satan has always tried to tear up God's moral order in the world. This is why it is important for us to know that in 2 Corinthians 2.11, it says this. Paul's writing, so that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And so you have people that know the Bible and know history and whatnot. When you have movements come about, like the social justice movement, for example, the last few years, I know 
And therefore, I teach you guys that it's really an extension of the social gospel, which is an entirely different gospel. And we were never going to be a part of that. It was a false doctrine. The diabolical reversal of everything, folks, is Satan's approach. Destroy God's created order, destroy the integrity of Scripture, destroy the character of God, destroy the name of Christ. And that ultimately is what is behind the feminist movement. This is not some whimsical idea that popped up into the 20th century by a few women who wanted to take off the apron and buy a briefcase. It goes much deeper than that. This New Age thinking, this ancient Gnosticism, the heart of it is female power. That's the key to salvation. Feminist liberation releases us from God and from all his evil male values like marriage, fidelity, family, authority, Morality. All those quotes I just read to you, all the stuff I share with you about ancient Gnosticism is tearing down those things. And it is what is at the, the, the core, it's what drives, it's the belief system of the feminist movement. And I showed you those quotes from those women. Those ideas aren't, didn't come from them. They've been around for some time. Since when? The Tower of Babel. The serpent Eve wants to set us free, and the God of the Bible is a jealous tyrant who wants to stand in her way. And the goal of liberation is not total or is total reversal of all God ordained values. That's why it is so unthinkable that Christians would get sucked into this. And so, this is a, a, a I kind of came down to men last week a little hard in terms of you got to lead, you can't be passive, and so on. And so, now's my moment briefly to come down a little direct on women. At the very core of your desire to compete for male headship or to compete with your husband, to not follow him or submit to him, is what? It's satanic. It is sin. And it's time that we start to think that way. Do you understand now why I'm going through this sermon series and going through such basic topics as what is a man and what is a woman and lie the times that we live in. It was funny and tragic at the same time because I had the same reaction as you guys did. This is a simple question. What is a woman? This is hilarious, but it's also so sad and telling. What did those people, those older people in the United Kingdom, pass on to their children? What are the, these young women and men going to pass on to their children when they can't define what a a woman is. And if the church doesn't take a stand, what happens to the church's witness on the role of older men and older women and younger women and younger men? What happens to our witness? It's destroyed. Which is why we will never be a part of, as long as I am here, we will never be an affirming church. I will not, we will not affirm that which is against God's word when it comes to sex. Transgenderism, homosexuality, adultery, all kinds of sexual immorality, a perversion of God's way, and we will stand on what the truth is. 
and we will preach that you can, you may have been that way, but you don't have to be that way anymore. God can transform your life. I'm not talking conversion therapy. I don't believe in that. It's a divine event where God will actually transform somebody, and there's scriptural evidence. You once were that way. You're not anymore. And as a work of God. But you've got to understand what is a man and what is a woman. And so it's simple this week. <laughs> I couldn't find any verse, but women act like women. Be women, all right? And aggressively be women. Be proud of raising children, supporting your husband, submitting to your husband, helping your husband lead. And yes, you can't even work outside the home. My wife working outside the home makes it so that I can be here ministering to you because I don't make enough money to live here for you guys. But both of us working make it possible. She is supporting me in that way. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time this morning. Teach us your ways and what it means to be a, a biblical man and a biblical woman. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to dismiss this morning no song. Just enjoy your day. And hopefully May will not be as cold as April. Amen to that? Amen. Amen. God bless you.